As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Thank you once again for joining us here on the Race Mudder GP podcast. Uh, it's obviously the off-season, and we're going to take a little bit of a step back in time into, well, a very important part of MotoGP history, particularly coming off the 2022 MotoGP victory for Ducati and Peko Bagnaia, because the last time that that was done by Ducati was Casey Stoner back in 2007, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about here today, Casey Stoner in particular. Simon Patterson joining me, Toby Moody, together with Tom Jojic, uh, who was up and down the pit lane as a crew chief in the day. Simon, very much part of MotoGP pit lane, and I was there commentating all, all the races in that era. So, Casey Stoner, where do we start? Well, he started in, in 250 and 125. He won some Grand Prix. But in 2006, he arrived into MotoGP on the LCR Honda. And there's one thing that Tom pointed out to me before this podcast got underway. Welcome, Tom is that we forget that LCR was a brand new team in the sport then. How cool was that? Yeah, rookie team with a rookie rider on a factory Honda. So it's not like they were, you know, they, okay, thrown at the deep end is anyway is always going to happen with a new team. But basically, you've got the best package, right? Here, here's a bike that anybody can win on. Here's a rider that's an unknown, but, but um, you know, if you know anything about motor, MotoGP racing, working up and down the pit lane, anybody who's a dirt tracker that's that that fast on any flying lap, you know he's going to be good. It's just how good can he be? That's the question. And he was very good, and we'll oh, and we'll awesome. go into that yeah, as yeah. we progress. Simon, what were your memories watching him on the box, watching him trackside? I, I remember that that kind of the first season, um, and. I remember that, you know, my, my first memory of Casey was always seemingly that he was the guy who went like red sector, red sector, red sector, crash. There was so much speed there, but it, it was a real raw talent at the beginning, it seemed. It was, uh, you know, whenever you look at a rider and think, once you learn how to stop crashing, you're going to be really, really good. Um, I think that's probably my abiding memory of that first season, because I, I don't think the results were particularly stand out fantastic in that year were they they were th there was obviously a lot of potential there but he wasn't you know doing uh sort of 
multiple podiums in his first season as a rookie, the way, we, you know, he, he didn't do what Mark Marquez did as a rookie and win races immediately. But there was something there. There certainly was something there. We had the first race in 2006 at Hareth, and it was a great weekend. I will never forget yeah. that weekend. Uh, Ducati put themselves on pole position. So that's our abiding memory from that, together with Valentino being knocked off at the first corner with a coming together with his old mate, Tony Elias, that uh, they would come to blows later yeah. in the season. But we then went to the second race in 2006, Casey's second MotoGP endeavour, and that was in Qatar he was having all sorts of trouble getting to Qatar and he had to sleep the night on the floor in Dubai airport so he only got to the track very late indeed all not with enough sleep Saturday afternoon he put it on pole position I mean yeah brutal yeah it was brutal awesome because and don't forget back then we had um Friday was practice one qualifying one right so we had an hour in the morning and an hour in the afternoon and then so if it rained on Saturday, you still had a dry practice on Friday or vice versa. Uh, my abiding memory of 2006 was um, Kenny Jr. was fastest on Friday, almost every Grand Prix. We were always fastest Friday be because Kenny was a master at getting the maximum out of what he had and then pushing us, the team. But one thing that stood out there, Toby, was the fact that on Saturday, all of a sudden, Casey Stoner arrived and he was fastest and you just looked i remember looking up and down the pit lane and even inside our garage there was discussions already saying how do we get this kid for next year oh really yeah 100 percent. when you see that instantly you think to yourself well the only thing stopping him being a world champion is being in the right place and, and everything falling in place around him so that, that was what stood out for me. And I think he, he podiumed, didn't he? He did. Like, he almost won that yeah, race. Yeah, he, he knocked on the door of that. But then we went to race three, and he nearly won it, which was in Turkey. What a great race That's right. Yeah, it yeah. Was a, Beautiful. It was an adventure getting to and from the racetrack, but what a great racetrack. Um, yeah. Uh, he got second position in his third race, only 0.2 of a second off Marco Melandri. Nicky Hayden was third, five seconds back. Yeah, and Nicky won the championship, right? So, so, so I mean, if you think about the beginning of that, see, okay, the first Grand Prix, Hareth, he didn't have, I think he was 15th or 16th, nothing special, right? But but then, um, yeah, the second race to third race, and Casey looks like he could fight for the championship mm -hmm. in his first season. So, you know, we say he didn't do what Marquez did, but there were other things that happened around, you know, Marquez came in the factory team. Danny went to the factory team. Casey was used to racing Danny and Jorge. Those were his main, and Marco. So Landry's, you know, the, so the, those guys, like he lost to Melandri at, at uh, Istanbul. And that was, I mean, Istanbul was such an amazing circuit, wasn't it? And it's, it suited him. Like riding, riding the 990 suited him. That was for sure. You saw that instantly. So I was a fan at this point. I wasn't working in the paddock and, and, obviously aware of what was going on in MotoGP a lot, but I wasn't the huge 125-250 fan. Like, was was there a huge buzz about Casey coming into the championship or did people not really know what to expect from him? Or, you know, what was the expectation? Yes, he was quick. He was, he was electrifyingly quick, but he did always go off. You know, he was the proverbial Colin McRae. You know, it was slow him down and then he would actually go better. Um, I might have said this before on another podcast but I was stood on the pit wall on a Friday evening with Casey with Chaz and Leon Haslam I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty sure it was Leon and they were all in the championship at the time 
And what was going on there? We were just <laughs> kicking you around. Can as, it, <laughs> we were, no, we were genuinely for once up to some good. No, we they're were, all, we yeah, were just they're kicking, all good. Yeah, yeah. Kicking all around and the sun was going down in that Suzuka way. You you two can see it now. Mm. And Casey had had a monster accident during their day. And I kind of said to him as a slightly old duffer at <laughs> late 20s, early 30s years old or whatever, mid, mid 32, 33 years older at the time, I went, you need to just be careful because you've, you're just having accident after accident. But just just cool it and you'll be all right. You have plenty of speed. You will be all right. I said it in a very gentle way. And, of course, he stormed off in a paddy. That sounds like Raiders. You know, you know, can't tell yeah. me I know what I'm doing. And, and off he went. And, yeah, and yeah. that was my first moment of, oh, well, that's what he's like. Yeah. I mean, it's a good question, Simon. So, like, the reality of Casey Stoner was, you know, pre-MotoGP. And even, don't forget, he started out at, he was on a satellite team. And in the Aprilia days in 250, 125 days with Aprilia, also with KTM 125 with Harold Bartol. You know, the only time he was in a factory team was Harold's team on the KTM, right? He wasn't he wasn't an Aprilia factory rider. He was a he was an LCR satellite Aprilia two fifty. They had the gold number and the silver number, didn't they? The gold riders, even like ask Jeremy McWilliams about that. Like those guys that had the gold numbers on their bike, had they had the special pistons and all the rest of the stuff. So, you know, looking at Casey, he always came up the hard way. He was always like on the back foot because he was never signed as a factory rider coming from Australia. <clears throat> those things, they were hard to come by, right? So I think him arriving in MotoGP, for the people that had been around, like myself at that time, I'd already been there for, I don't know, what was it, Toby? Maybe 15, 16 years already by then or something like that? Maybe more. No, it was more because it was 06, starting in 98. So, so yeah, you watch those classes. I loved being in MotoGP and watching 125 and 250 practice in the background while you were doing your job, you know? And what stood out for me, I, even before he got there, I think we were discussing in our team, if we had a two-rider team in 06, who could we get? To, you want someone young, right? We had we knew Kenny Jr. was going to ride the bike, so you always looked at a guy like Casey. He was on everybody's radar. He had a big accident in 06 on the first lap at Mugello. Do you remember that at the top of the hill? Yeah. Beata 2, he looped mm. it. And that's when, Tom, there was some discussion about Michelin's and he mm. was getting the lesser Michelin's. What was the real story with who got what Michelin's in 06? Okay, 06, good question, Toby. 06, you, you, it's a good thing you remember that because I can... Because I was there okay, and I had to talk you, about it. Yeah, yeah. And I was there working with Michelin. So Kenny Jr. <laughs> refused to ride some front tires that they were trying to develop, yeah? Because really? we had, that was all out war, yeah? 06, we had Bridgestone against Michelin against Dunlop. And all three had some positives and negatives. So let's put the tire war into context. Michelin were making them overnight at the racetrack sometimes in Europe, yeah, because they could. They were trucking them in from Clermont-Ferrand. Bridgestone were much more of a stable platform, so they kind of had a better overall good tire. But on Sunday, Michelin always had a perfect tire. And what they were struggling with was the fact that Dunlop and Bridgestone both made better front tires than them, and their tire was a drive grip you know, all-out horsepower tire. So that's why they could win championships. I think it's still the same. If Bridgestone were there, you'd still have the same problems. But anyways, what Casey said probably to the press is the fact that he maybe wasn't given like some of the better tires. I'm talking about fronts. Rears, he would have been given every, as good as anything anybody else would have had. But back then, because Michelin needed to develop the front tire, 
because they were going to get beaten otherwise. Some people wouldn't have been given. What happened was clearly, and I remember this happening to us, Kenny Jr. refused to ride some of the new fronts. And there was a front tire that Valentino loved, and he wouldn't ride any of the other front tires because he didn't want to, I mean, testing fronts is dangerous, right? So he hmm. said, well, I'm not going to ride that front tire. And I remember Kenny Jr. saying, I'm not riding any new front tires. I'm going to ride this one. And they kind of, Mitch and kind of didn't have a choice with guys who were world champions. They they had to have some, and if you were in the hunt for the championship, which we weren't really in the hunt for the championship, but we were consistently top six. So you had some say, right? Whereas a guy like Casey didn't. So I think if he made that statement, he was probably... I would I would um, I would believe everything he said at that point. So he would have been hindered by having to test fronts, potentially crashing more. Yeah, yeah. And he only knew one speed. That was the, yeah. That was the other detrimental nice problem to have that we all enjoyed watching him because whether or not you're watching on the telly or whether or not you were watching trackside or. What was that story you told me a couple of years ago about standing on <laughs> the pit wall? I was Bruno. Go on then. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, this is 2007, right? So Casey oh, okay. Stoner, so 2006, Casey was phenomenal. 2007, we had the 800 thing, you know, everybody dropped down, but Ducati were, were still making 990 power. And um, they achieved it, and fair play to them. And um, Casey swapped, hopped on the Ducati. And I, I remember first practice Friday morning in Bruno, I was next to, we were standing next to HRC on the pit wall because we were a Honda team, basically, with our own chassis and stuff. And on the out lap, he, everybody comes by. Casey's the first guy out of the pits. And he's already coming out of that last corner. And you hear this, wow, he's already spinning like mad. Come, Nobody else is doing that. Like everybody else is building up to it. He's already, he's already full gas. So first flying lap. Two minutes flat. Second one, 59. Third one, 58. I remember looking across the pit wall to whoever was standing on the Repsol pit box, and we looked at each other and went, what the heck? Like, this is the guy you want. I mean, he was just, it, I've never, I'll never forget that moment because it took, it took everybody else like five laps to get there. He's already doing 58s on the third lap. It was ridiculous. Awesome. That, and that's the thing. That was Casey. He only knew one speed, mm. the maximum of the tire. And he's mm. he's he was an absolute master at switching on a tire. That's what he was so good at. Mm. So, as Tom said, uh, the 2006 season ended up with him going on to the Ducati. And we caught up with the guy that actually did the deal with Casey to get him aboard the Ducati. So we had a quick chat with Livio Supo. Livio Supo now joins us. Uh, Livio was the man who signed Casey Stoner in quite some circumstances. Livio, how did it come about? Yeah, ciao, ciao Toby. Well, uh, let's say that uh, I've been in contact with Casey the first time, I mean, with his father uh, the year before, uh, in 2005, when he was still in 250. Um, but then at the time we thought that uh, uh, for some reason in MotoGP the experienced guy was better. Uh, at that time, you remember, except Valentino, all the other top guys were Loris, Barros, Sete, uh, Colin. Uh, they were not that young, you know. It looks like with the four-stroke machines, uh, we have to remember we were just at the beginning of the four-stroke machine era um, because uh, it was. A, 
just three years after the, the start of the championship. Uh, so we, you remember, we still believe that superbike riders and anyway, guys around 30s with more experience were the best choice. So basically, we thought that in 2000, I mean, asking Casey to jump from 250 to a MotoGP would have been a risk. So we yeah. gave up. Uh, by being in touch with the with Casey's father, calling for uh, for always, no, since that, since then, and then uh, um, you know, 2006 was a, a very difficult season with Sete. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he had a lot of problem with his shoulder, and uh, it was a lot of up and down, and uh, more down than up, honestly. And um, and so we we were doing an, uh, we were trying to renew the contract with Sete. Uh, at that time, the manager was uh, the sister, Cristina. And uh, after a long negotiation, we 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 didn't find the, an agreement. Um, so I remember I was in Estoril. I called Claudio and Filippo and I said, I think we should try to go with, with Casey. At the time, Casey was already, of course, in MotoGP with Lucio, Cecchinello. And he already showed that the speed was there. Um, still missing... A win. Uh, he did the pole in the first race in Qatar, but anyway, he, clearly he was fast. Crashed a lot, but super fast. And uh, and we thought that uh, okay, it was because we said uh, we didn't end up with a reasonable for us um, agreement. Uh, we thought that I mean, I suggested it was time to to switch and and change strategy and take the risk of signing a young gun. And uh, and then uh, in in Estoril, I start. Colin was not there. Colin was in Australia. Uh, so we start exchanging email and phone call. And we found uh, the agreement quite quickly. Uh, so basically, uh, if I well remember, it was Sunday night or Friday. I don't remember. I mean, during the weekend, I don't remember the day. I remember I went in the small motorhome of Casey. At the time, he had a very small motorhome. He was there with with, with uh, his cousin. At the time, was the one that was uh, the kind of helper for Casey. And uh, I went there with the printed uh, contract, and we signed it. That's it. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> so, in reality, we have been speaking for a month, but the real negotiation was super quick. And was it that easy when you signed him to go to Repsol Honda? Uh the similar, yes. Well, let's say that, uh, as we all know, 2009 for Casey has been a very difficult season. And from honestly speaking, for me as well, um, because it was not easy to manage the situation and uh, the pressure I had uh, um, in the company and uh, especially from the title sponsor of the team uh, was huge. Uh, but at the time, I was lucky enough to get the proposal of Nakamoto to join HRC. And, uh, and 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 I accepted. And so when I told Casey, it was uh, Sunday night after Sepang race in 2009. After the race, I told Casey, I, need to, uh, I, I remember we were at the airport and I said to him, I need to tell you something, I will leave the Ducati and I will go HRC. <laughs> he said to me, is there a place for me? <laughs> yeah. Of course, he was joking. In 2010, he still was uh, under contract with Ducati. But let's say that the idea uh, to have Casey in HSC was since the beginning, of course. What a story. And yes, 
sometimes things are meant to be. And come the first race of 2007, the first race of Casey Stoner aboard a factory Ducati, and he goes and wins it at Qatar. He he came out the last corner. I don't know if you remember this, Tom, Simon. He came out the last mm. corner, not in the lead, on the first lap, and it just went... Mirror signal manoeuvre, yeah. led by the start line. And I remember on the commentary, I just went, look at the speed. And that yeah. was how that 2007 championship was partly, partly decided with the sheer grunt that thing had. They, 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 they brought everything to the track. They didn't hold back. Yeah. Like we sent sometimes Honda do, did, did, because I don't hold back anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think for me, it was like the stars aligned. You know what I mean? Like here's Casey Stoner on a, on a 990 and everybody's looking like, yeah, he had a couple of amazing results at the beginning of the year. But all, then all of a sudden, you know, he wasn't like the everybody needed Casey. But then he, he swapped to Ducati. Ducati did that special thing of going, let's swap to Brutestones. So then you give Casey Stoner a front tire that you can't crash on. Yeah. Here's a guy that can, like, I mean, Jeremy's, Six, eight, ten bar brake pressure, maximum lean angle at Bruno, elbow on the ground. You can't crash a Bridgestone front. It was ridiculous, right? And then, and then you give him this, and then Ducati actually with Desmo are able to outperform everybody on the engine department. And 10 wins from 18 races. He wasn't beaten by his teammate. Just let that sink in. Look, we're talking about Caparossi here. We're not talking about just some, you know what I mean? Like, Caparossi almost won the championship in 06. He was fighting for Caparossi the championship. Caparossi won one race, right? to be fair. He won in Matecki. Yeah, he but it did. was a wet race, not a, and it was a stop-go, flag-to-flag thing. But, but Yeah, it's that moment as as the old rider where you look across and realize, my days are done. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. You've seen that, Simon, yeah? Yeah, and they, they, they were for Caparossi after that, really, I think. Yeah. But that You know, he went from fighting for the championship the year before to never really being back at that level again after, you know, the first few races of the year in 07, whenever Casey came out and just annihilated him and everyone else. Yeah, and and when you see the margin of victory, so this is Ducati's first world championship, yeah, Toby? 81 points ahead of Honda. They won the title by how much? Uh he won the title by 125 points. I can tell you that without looking because it was a six clear race wins worth of points. Six. Wow. I mean, I went up to him after after Assen that he won and I just said, you are riding like nothing else we have ever seen anybody. So sublime. Yeah. And I don't use that word very often. And he was genuinely like, oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, it's it's good to hear that from you because you've seen you know mick race and you've seen all the other valentino come through and all this kind of stuff what what was it talking about valentino what was it like watching from a not from afar simon you know what i mean you know were, were you a casey fan or were you did you still have your favorites um so at this point i was still a valentino fan um you know back in the back in at a very young age um so oh seven i just started university um and it was like it, it had kind of been a case of where has this Casey kid come from? Because I'd I'd tuned in and out a little bit in 07 uh, or in 06 and I'd maybe not been as aware of him as I, you know, 
as I would be now of anyone coming up through the ranks. Um, I was in the middle of doing university exams and blah, 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 moving away from home for the first time. And then 07, it was just there right away. Um, I have to admit, yeah, it surprised because it wasn't on the radar. Um, and I no, I think no one had expected Ducati would ever do something like that at that point either. Yeah. You know, the, the bike had never, never looked never looked to be that dominant no in a championship that to me at that point you know the the, the honda strength through the 990 era had been so strong despite valentino doing what he did in the yamaha and everything that you know then suddenly he's just annihilating everyone on this bike that has never done anything before and we've seen this before in other you know more recently as well i think where rules have changed and someone has immediately made a strength out of it in the first year of it but not in the way he did. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. Not too many people could get hold of an 800 and and, and win on it. You know, we mentioned Loris Caparossi knocking on the door of the championship in 2006 probably would have won it were it not for the Catalonia crash but if buts and what what was so difficult about an 800 from a 990 Tom well the whole target of 800s was to slow them down I mean that was that was the purpose no because basically what what the rule makers didn't bank on was the fact that Desmo actually can just rev higher and still get the fuel consumption. So <clears throat> they dropped the they dropped the fuel capacity and there was some clever fueling going on. So but you know, and you can look at the rule book changes along the way and see why certain things happen. But who cares? Like they they were never they did what they had to do to win the championship and they did. So eight hundreds were going back to corner speed was the target. So slow down to top speed, but carry more corner speed. <clears throat> and the whole idea behind that was a, a lighter rider can win the championship over full horsepower. And if we if we want to paint the brush, you know what I mean? Honda kind of dominate rule changes. And they had Danny Pedrosa and they wanted to win the championship. That was their number one target was to dominate with Danny Pedrosa. And Danny was a tiny guy, so you needed the bike to have less mass you know, have less inertia. And, th- and the only way to do that is to reduce the capacity and make him smaller again. He backfired on him because they couldn't win the championship until, what was it? Casey Stoner swapped from a, you know what I mean? Mm. So like mm. it, it, it was, it became the 800 era. I mean, the reason why Lorenzo dominated a little bit also, we're talking about Casey here, but Casey on a Ducati was just, that first year was unstoppable. 
Then a whole bunch of riders threw their toys out of the pram and everybody wanted Bridgestones. So we should put that in here, right, Toby? Because some there was a swap from Michelin to Bridgestone by the top riders, thereby resulting in a one-tire make series, everybody on Bridgestones, evening the playing field a little bit from a tire war point of view. Tire war stopped, yeah. And then... Cor- Pedroza changed mid-season. Yeah, correct. Press conference yep. at Samar- at, uh, at Mizano. Correct. And half of the press corps was outraged. Yeah. And the other half went, you got to win a race. Yeah. You've got to have bridge. If you, and that's what you know, if, if you think back to 06, HRC hired Danny and stuck Casey in a satellite team. And Casey almost won Qatar and Turkey. Where was Danny? And then all of a sudden, you know, 07... Danny, like you got it. I always look at this back then as Danny versus Casey and then also Lorenzo, because those are the three guys in 250s that were smashing each other up, right? And then if, you, if you're thinking about being Honda, like you've, you've let Casey go to satellite and then he's hopped on a Ducati in 07 in the year that you've decided you need to go to 800s. Everybody's agreed to that. And he smokes everybody with Bridgestones. Now they're looking at, well, hang on, is Casey better than Danny? Like, did we, did we make a mistake here? And pre, pre that, you would say no, because Danny back-to-back two 250 World Championships on a Honda, yeah? So he he was the golden boy. And then all of a sudden, everybody's on Bridgestones, and it now becomes harder for Casey to win because of limitations of maybe some other parts of the package, not because he's not maybe potentially the best of those riders, because he definitely showed, geez, when, you, when he swaps, he just dominated again, yeah? So it's it's an interesting look back at that sequence of events yeah that's almost exactly what i was going to ask you know was it this like perfect combination of the three factors of casey ducati bridgestone or would casey have won in 07 had he stayed with honda and got a factory seat um because then he would have been on michelin's what way would that have worked in your opinion what do you think well i i would actually say that he wouldn't have won on a honda I think it would have been much harder for him because Honda. No, disagree with you. You think disagree so? In, in 07? He was like, in 07, if you win mm. by six races worth of points, even if you take out a mechanical advantage, you've still got a 125 point buffer. I think what you have to remember, Toby, was Honda made the worst engine they'd ever made in Grand Prix in 2007. And the reason I say that is because we were running a Honda and that was the end of Kenny Roberts. It was so bad. Now, if you put Casey, I would back that up and go, Casey almost went to Kawasaki between 06 and 07, almost. And I believe had he signed for Kawasaki in 2007, we would be talking about a Kawasaki world champion, not a Ducati world champion, because that thing was a missile mate, that 800, yeah? And I, have, I have direct experience of working for Kawasaki in 2008 and 2009. When Kenny stopped, I managed to join the Kawasaki test team in 08. And I tell you what, they had Bridgestones already, because they'd had them, yeah, in 06 and 05. And what you had there was he, the problems that he would have had from a front tire point of view, they would have been solved at Kawasaki anyway, because Bridgestone and Kawasaki were already doing a phenomenal amount of testing. So had he swapped to Kawasaki instead of Ducati, it would have been, that would have been something that, it would have changed Kawasaki's course of history, I think. When you joined Kawasaki, did they have enough power? Did they have enough grunt? Was it there? Mate, it was, (laughs) if you go back and look at, if you go back to 07 and look at the top speeds, it was Kawasaki versus Ducati. 
at every racetrack. That thing had that that engine was the best in line at that moment in time by far. It was better than Yamaha, better than Honda. Everybody was way better than Suzuki. It wasn't even close for them, right? I think what they were lacking on chassis side, which I saw when I arrived there, and and you got to remember, like when I arrived there, I'd only have, I only have worked for Kenny. So I'd been 10 years at Kenny under Tom O'Kane and Warren Willing. So I had a pretty good idea of where I was going, but didn't really realize what I knew. And then I arrived at Kawasaki and got thrown with Olivier Jack and the test team looking across at Casey on Bridgestones. My first job at Kawasaki was... Can you use these tires with Olivier that Casey's using? Can you use this front tire? Because none of the race team could, yeah. And I remember we put it on, I was in Malaysia, we put it on Olivier's bike and we did the test. And at the end of the test, Bridgestone Kubu came to me and he said, you know, on the same tire, you guys are faster than Yamaha with Olivier, never mind the race team, which then meant we're fighting for the championship. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It was good. The Kawasaki had its problems, but the engine wasn't the main problem. They had a clutch problem back then. So for me, when I went to Kawasaki, my question was, why did you guys not get Casey when I heard that story internally? What happened there? Sad, because it it was the end of Kawasaki after that. It started to drift away. It started to Mm. drift away. But likewise, the domination that Casey had in 2007 didn't continue it was almost impossible for it to continue because when you're at the top of mount everest there's there's only one way to go um and then he had his physical problems his his medical problems with a lactose intolerance that dogged him in his in the latter part of his career there was maybe a bit of frustration at ducati because he was still the only one able to win on an 800 cc ducati i know that um you know, at the time, I remember reading all about the medical problems that, you know, was sort of weird diagnoses and no one knew exactly what was going on with him. And he didn't know what exactly was going on with him. And and speaking to him more recently, um, you know, this is something that we've talked about quite a bit over the last year or so on a few occasions where I've bumped into him. If it was anything like it is now back then, then what he was doing just to turn up every weekend and be on the grid was, you know, superhero stuff. Because you, you listen to this guy talking about, you know, an ultra fit, super competitive athlete who sometimes can't get out of bed in the morning because he's in so much pain um, or he's so exhausted. Um, so, yeah, it, I think we now know it was chronic fatigue syndrome, um, which is kind of still a bit of a, a very not very sure diagnosis. Um, but if he was, you know, if he was in the early stages of that, then. It, it really, listening to him talking about it now, really frames what he was able to do for me. Yes, I mean, there, there was a a moment on the telly when he had finished at Catalonia and he was just, he could barely stand up. He could barely stand up. You know, it's it's physically draining riding these things anyway, but when yeah. you're, as Simon says, you can't even get out of bed. But when we came to 2011... He made the switch over to Honda. This was the fifth and final year of the 800cc formula. We all knew that he was going that the, the, the championship was going into 1,000cc in 2012, which was as close to 990 as we could get without going back to 990. So, would it work? Would he have the Midas touch? Well, he just turned up and he won his first race for Honda, for HRC, for Repsol Honda. 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> he had 10 wins, eh? Six podiums. So he won. He beat He beat Danny Pedrosa by 80 points. I, it's almost like, you know, I, I have a soft spot for Danny and Casey and Lorenzo. And I, I'm a big Valentino fan also. I mean, I can go back and talk about all the riders. I, I, I like them all, but there's like certain people that stand out, right? And for me, Casey Stoner showed in 2011 that, you know, what a what an amazing person. I think his chronic fatigue and all that. I, I listened to a two-hour podcast with him this year, actually. It was really good to listen to. And what I really like about him is like he talks about being a perfectionist and not accepting, like even winning and not accepting a race that he made mistakes. And I mean, that's something that, I think a lot of people in life in general, never mind racers, have to learn to understand of how to get over. And I think I have a bit of that. Like you're, you know, you're stuck in this in this little bubble of where you live and what you do and your work, and you're trying to figure out how to accept not making everything perfect. That's hard to do. It's almost like you have to realize this is the best I can do today. So you know what? Let's get on with it and see what we can do. I mean. When he won in 2011 and Valentino went to Ducati and couldn't ride his motorcycle and nobody could ride his motorcycle when he was there, I think as a rider and you're at the peak of your game and all every time you have a teammate that can't even get near the podium, it, it puts extra pressure on you because everybody's looking at you to win. So he'd already won in seven. Ducati's looking at him to win again, 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 and he didn't for whatever reasons but he was able to almost always win the championship. Then all of a sudden he swaps to Honda and makes people look silly on that bike. Eh? Ridiculous. And he did win in his last season at yeah. Ducati. Uh, he nearly won his last race Correct. for Ducati in, in 10, but it took somebody else seven years <laughs> to win on a Ducati. And that was Ian Oney yeah. at at, at Austria, yeah, yeah. seven years. At a circuit yeah, yeah. boat for the Ducati. So it does make you wonder, like, what are the Ducati guys doing at that time? Like, But, you know, if you come back to Casey in, in 2011, what a season. I mean, he, it, and you know what was interesting about that? What stood out for me in 2011? Malaysia 2010, Casey on a Ducati, I think he beat everybody by 30 seconds. Remember? It was ridiculous. It was in the rain. Okay, this I should stipulate this. Like Casey won in the wet. He was good in Malaysia anyway. If you look back at a lot of his fastest laps, every class he has a fastest lap of Malaysia. So he that was, it was a track he liked. Yeah, he loved. But he smoked everybody in the wet. The Ducati was always good in the wet. It was an, it always was an amazing bike in the wet. In 2011, he rode the Honda in the wet in Hareth, and he was slow. And Valentino crashed into him on a Ducati, took him out. So for me, what stood out technically is the rider is good in the wet. The Honda isn't good in the wet. So their problems are something different. But anyway, he dominated that bike in the dry and he won the championship comfortably, like with races in his back pocket. Yeah, that's kind of I love that stuff, because for me, if you're a team boss or an engineer like I was in the pit lane, I remember specifically a discussion in our team was we need to get Casey. Like I said that already, Toby, right? And and that was everybody was trying to get him. And yeah, it um it really shows a guy has a phenomenal ability. And I felt sorry for Pedrosa. Well, he didn't have all the chances in the world. Uh, no. So I'm afraid I don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. 
And I don't think that was because of the rider. No. I hate yeah, to say no, that. No, but I too. think Pedrosa lost a championship for other reasons. Correct. Because the rider was definitely able to win that championship. Yeah, I mean, he won two, 250 championships, 2004, 2005. He won his first race on the 250. He won in 125. It was, it was to be, yeah, yeah. wasn't it? It was always to be, but it didn't yeah, quite yeah. work out. Simon, who have you spoken to and who... Who, who's mentioned Casey and you and you've really gone blimey they they made an impression upon them he made an impression upon them is there somebody who comes to mind in your travels up and down the back of the garages yeah more than anything else of list um Peko Bagnaya he's mentioned him as because he? yeah quite a bit because as uh as Casey has kind of come back into the Ducati fold which I think he's sort of come into and then left and then came back into and then left again and is now kind of back in. Um, he's been spending a bit more time at races, but he's also been spending quite a bit of time, it seems, sort of on the phone to Bagnaya as a bit of a mentor figure, as a bit of a, you know, the guy that Peko phones whenever he needs someone to calm him down or to, you know, to just help him explain what he's thinking. Um, I think... It's weird watching how Casey as a person has evolved because for me, there is this perception of him when I didn't know him but was watching him on TV as, as sort of the ultra-perfectionist, maybe a bit highly strong. And he's calmed down a lot now that he's retired, as a lot of racers do. Um, he's He's lost a little bit of that perfectionism now that it's not him on the bike. And it seems to have made him a really excellent mentor. Um, and, and I think that it's not, you know, it's it's not crazy to say that there's a little bit of stoner influence in Bagnaya's championship this year. Um, because I know that the part that they were speaking, uh, maybe the most from what Bagnaya was said, was that like midpoint of the championship whenever everything was going wrong for him. And he had to knuckle down and pull his, you know, sort of get his act together. And um, yeah, we'll never know what those phone calls, what those conversations were. But it's uh you know it's it seems that they've had some effect and I I know that as well they they spent a little bit of time together because Casey was over in Europe for World Ducati Week um, and I think there was an actual bit of you know face to face time there same at Phillip Island where he made an appearance. Tom, you did some work for Honda. Did you ever see any data? Did you ever see some little nuggets? Um, from Casey, no, because um, well, actually, sorry, in 06, well, 06 you would have. We weren't allowed. We didn't share data, right? So the only thing we would get then is you would ask your Japanese Honda representative, like, what could, what, where could we be better in, in this part of our package? And they would take your data and look and say, okay, you could probably do this differently or whatever. Um, no, we, there was never sharing of data. And, and I left Honda when Casey joined Honda, right? So we saw that, that crossover. But what I was going to say about that point earlier was what Simon was talking about. Um, what I liked about Casey was he stopped at his peak in some aspects, but also he has this will and this want to, um, to not just take his secrets to the grave. You know, it's a good thing. And I think Ducati hiring him as a consultant or Honda hiring him as a consultant, they'd be crazy not to. I mean, the thing is nobody could ride his bike and he could ride any bike. So, you know, if he can give some insight I think Peko Bagnai, and I worked with Peko, I think he stood out for me in 2014 in the Moto3 team. Like, it was his rookie year, yeah, in Moto3. He was in the VR garage 
um, next to VR started their first Moto3 team, right, Toby? And he was in the garage with Romano Fanati as his teammate. And Pecco, in, in that team, I, 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 was, um, I was the KTM representative inside that team. And what I saw was, this guy's got some talent, but maybe he didn't have the right people around him in that moment in time. And then what happened was he went on and now he's a world champion. So if he had Casey on the hotline and he had another bad phone to the VR camp because he's training in the VR academy, I mean, what a great way to have two inputs. So you've probably got what arguably a lot of people call the greatest of all time, Valentino. And whether you agree with that or not, whatever. I mean, you can't say he didn't win world championships. And then you got Casey who... Valentino couldn't ride his bike, but now he's riding the Ducati and trying to get the best out of that package and probably some of the same engineers in the team. I mean, that's how you win a championship. Fair play to Pecco. And for me, he stood out as a thinking rider, but also an aggressively a fa- fast rider. Awesome. Good for him. I think that, you know, one of the one of the defining races of the year for Pecco's season was Phillip Island. Um, where mm. you know not a circuit that that anyone really expected Ducati to perform really well based on past experiences, and he rode that super intelligent, smart race. Uh, coming home in third, didn't get involved in the fight, but he was right there to pick up the pieces of what did happen. Um, and then uh, you look back a few days earlier in the weekend, and him and Stoner did a track walk together on Thursday. And yeah, yeah, gotta wonder what information was shared on that, what conversations were had, given Casey's you know incredible Phillip Island record. Six times in a row, consecutive victories. Hey, Toby, Casey Stoner, unbeatable at Phillip Island. Two thousand seven, yeah, eight, yeah, awesome, nine, awesome. ten, eleven, twenty twelve. I mean that exactly. All his Ducati years and all his Honda yep. years. So yeah, uh, yeah, all the years he was in MotoGP. Every year he won at Phillip Island, less for 06. I mean, pfft. crazy. <laughs> and like, I mean, that is just like, imagine the pressure of that. So first of all, like the guy already has got this perfectionist attitude, which is a good thing as a racer. And then it gives you work ethic. You know, if you don't have discipline and work ethic, you're not going to become a world champion. And then he becomes world champion, but he never, he's never beaten at his home racetrack. Awesome. And then it also, what a home racetrack to have, right? I mean, it, it was a fantastic place to be to be able to win races. And I think it, it's an awesome thing to see. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Middle of 2012, his second year at Repsol Honda. We got to Le Mans. It was the Thursday. There was all sorts of rumors going around literally quarter of an hour before the four o'clock Thursday afternoon Mm. press conference. And it was rammed in that room, and he said, that's it, I've had enough, I'm going to finish the season, and I am going to go home. Um, we were all a bit, wow, you know, that's pretty serious. Um, he had an accident at Indianapolis, he didn't race uh, Czech Republic, San Marino, mm, gone. That's right, yeah, yeah. But I'd forgotten this, and I had to look it up. 
He was on the podium for his last three Grand Prix with Repsol Honda. He nearly won his last Grand Prix. I mean... Yeah. Yeah, I like the fact... Talk about going out of the top. Yeah. That's Nico Rosberg-esque, isn't it? Yeah, he has this physical issue going on in the background that a lot of people are even doubting. And then, you know, he wins the championship swap into Honda, almost wins the champ, almost backs it up. Had he not, I think had he not had that crash, Toby, he probably would have backed it up. Mm. And he's decided at Le Mans, what, race five, I'm done. Mm. And you can't change his mind. And they threw so much money at him. Oh, um, yeah. I, yeah. 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 Leave it. Was, he, he said, no other person in the history of the Honda Motor Company has ever been offered that kind of money. And we can only guess as to what it was. Yeah, you got to give... I, I like that. I like the fact that he said, I'm done, and then walked away. And also, I like the fact that he's talking in podcasts, and when I've seen interviews with him on the on the official website and stuff, saying how he wants to help, and how he like wants to be part of, you know, helping young riders and and giving his knowledge back to the sport. I think that's a great thing. I like doing that, Toby. I like talking about it. You know, it's a great thing to be able to to um, put input in. I, I genuinely think if it wasn't for the fact that he has a young family, that he's based in Australia, that he would have by now found himself into some sort of a safety official role or stewarding role or some sort of a role within the organization of the sport because he does he he has strong opinions he has good ideas and he wants to be involved with it still he just didn't want all the you know all the stuff that came with being a racer Mm. Mm. yeah and that that's a good point like i mean i think he he suits the role of like a brand ambassador almost in this modern world we live in right i don't even know what that is toby some young kids said that you you know simon better than us right that told me about that the other day i was like what what is that so like being you know i think working for ducati as a consultant to the riders is that's an ideal scenario for him but he almost does already because of what we just heard from simon it's 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 not about telling them how to ride the bike. Oh, you do this, you do that, you stand on the brake here, you accelerate that. It's it's about the mental approach of calming them down before a high-pressure race and, and such like that. Mental mm. thing, such as we saw with Fabio going into 2021 season. He was in a mess at end of 2020. Had a chat with somebody over the winter, sorted his brain out, boom, championship. Yeah, I, I think some riders, like a guy like Johan Zarco needs that. You know, it's like you need to have this mentor behind you that you believe in that has achieved it. It's almost like Casey having McDoon to talk to every once in a while would have been an awesome thing during his reign, right? Because he, for sure, they would have talked because he's a hero of his, right? And being Australian, that's kind of the role for him. I think he does it, but I don't, from the podcast I listen to, it doesn't sound like anybody's prepared to pay him enough to do it. So you stay home and you spend time with your family. Uh, and that's you know he he did like he's done two races post covid um he did the final two races of of last season uh 2021 he came to portugal he came to valencia but it was because someone a tv broadcaster was willing to pay him a lot of money to come mm. um it wasn't because Ducati put their hand in their pocket it, you know it, it wasn't for anything else other than there was there was a wage there to earn and i don't blame him for that Yep, mm. fair enough. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's not many people that Valentino look up to, 
But I'm sure there's there's a lot of Casey in there because Man Alive, you mentioned Bruno. My abiding memory was also Bruno, but it was at the back of the paddock when they've done turn one, kink of turn two, and then you've got the first chicane, the left and the yeah. right, which is a fast chicane. It's all about corner speed. It was damp. It was a cold, miserable morning. And this animal came over that slight crest up in towards that chicane. <laughs> it's spinning a wheel and it's just as if it's the last lap for the championship and a gazillion dollars no it's friday morning for <laughs> that's casey and i yeah, yeah. and i just went uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, i've been lucky enough to see a bit of motorsport but that was like just nuts see i i come into the paddock after casey had already retired so my abiding casey on a bike memory is uh that sapang test in 2017 when he was uh, back doing some riding for Ducati and he came in against the full MotoGP grid, set the fastest time of the day of the week on day two and went, all right, see you guys. And just left. Just left. Four years off the bike, middle of the paddock, mm-hmm. up against everyone, smashes his lap time at, at a circuit, like you said earlier, Tom, that he loved mm-hmm. and just checked out and went home. Yeah, awesome. I think my abiding memory of Casey was, so you'll be surprised by this, one Toby and Simon. Well, basically, one Casey rode for Harold in one two fives, and um, I worked with Warren Willing right after that. And Warren was actually also doing some work with us during during uh, 05. And Casey was riding the one two five before that. But anyways, there was this thing where one at one practice session, it might have even been Philip Island, I think, because he knows because it's his home track. First lap out of the pits on a one two five, and he crashed, and he came back. They fixed the bike, went back out, crashed. Came back, fixed the bike, went back out, crashed. And Harold said, "Look, if you don't stop crashing, I'm going to um, I'm going to sack you." And Casey said back to him, "Well, if you don't make the bike better, I can't go fast." <laughs> and it was just like for me, it was I, I'll, I'll never forget that story. And and that coming from Warren was he, he was inside the team, so so I remember I was riding a scooter at Saxon Ring. It used to be I used to love doing a lap on the scooter just because like you have to understand the racetrack if you're an engineer and and it was a similar thing to what you said toby chaz davis and casey stoner were chatting and walking and i stopped because i knew chaz because we chatted quite a few times and hit and um spoke to his dad a few times and all the rest of it and casey didn't know me i didn't know him but i kind of got to know him on that conversation and i said chaz was asking me what i was doing and all the rest of chatting and i said anyway i said to casey at that moment i said you know what dude if you keep riding like that, you're going to be world champion one day. I go, I wouldn't stop riding. Don't let anybody tell you to slow down because um, riding like that is just, it's in you. You either can or you can't do it. Mm, and that really summed up what he was all about, wasn't it? Um, yeah. A great, great, great trio of memories there. Um, but yeah, just flick back a couple of minutes and listen again to what simon said about turning up to a test as a retired regular grand prix rider everybody's trying to go quickly because they're all trying to get the top time because that's a racer they they want to be top of the pile even at a test day it turns up it's a what a four-day test and in two days he goes there you go boys see you later and he's already on the beach when they're still whizzing around in the sweat of sapang i mean Come on, you know, as I say, Nico Rosberg, that was quite something to go out as the reigning world champion. But Casey, he had the utter speed of of somebody that we uh, we may never see for some while. 
Mark Marquez is quick. Mark Marquez is spectacular. What a shame we never got the two of them together. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Yeah, it would have been interesting. There's no doubt about it. Different era. Again, I think almost Casey was the beginning of everything going too electronic. And Mark was the aftermath of that, like riding it to that level, right? I'm not sure that Casey would really have enjoyed riding against Mark either with the aggressiveness that Mark brought to it. You know, my, my memory of Casey riding against Valentino is that whenever it got, I don't want to use the word nasty, but when it got physical, he wasn't the biggest fan of it. Um, and I, I don't know if Mark would have just kind of overpowered him a little bit um, if when they came up against each other. Whether or not Casey would still have had the speed to have done what he was doing and dominate races I, is another question. But I think mano a mano on track, it might not have gone Casey's way, maybe as much as we think it would have. Well, it's a great conversation to have to hypothesize what would it have been like that that would kill many an evening in a pub in a bar wherever you are all (laughs) over the world all over the world tom thank you so much um you were there you've given us some great insight particularly behind the scenes about kawasaki and riding around a scooter a saxon ring thank you so much (laughs) my pleasure thank you uh simon patterson as well for joining us here i hope you've enjoyed a bit of a reminisce very much so Good, always good to talk memories. It certainly is, certainly is. Thank you for tuning in and downloading uh, this Race MotoGP podcast. Do like and subscribe wherever you get them from. Leave us a, a rating. And uh, if you want to leave us a message or send us an email, then do podcasts at the-race.com. In the meantime, thank you, Simon. Thank you, Tom. And from myself, Toby Moody, goodbye for now. The Athletic.